welcome to yet another anime podcast. This is who the hell do I think I am? I'm Ninjabori, and I'm yet another anime podcast host. Hope everyone is enjoying the summer anime season so far. Apologies for the episode being one week later than usual. A couple of things happening in real life. First, actually started a new podcast uh, coming out called Recommended for You. Um, the idea is that over on Twitter every weekday at rex for you pod that's R E C S F O R Y O U P O D. Uh, I'm going to be recommending a content creator who I think you should be checking out. And on the weekends, I'm going to be doing a podcast episode, diving a little bit deeper into that content creators uh, for that week. Week, um, you know why they work, what what I'd like about them, and where you can get started with them. Um, the first episode was about content creators who kind of shaped my taste uh, in content. But you know, in upcoming weeks, I'm probably going to be having an anime content creator episode similar to what I did here. They're a little bit more in depth, a little bit more fleshed out. So uh, you have that to look forward to. Uh, the second reason this is delayed is that I actually uh, started. I'm starting a new job uh, in this coming week. So I wanted to take this last week to you know not st- last weekend to kind of not not stress too much about it and just kind of. In- Enjoy myself. So, um, but we still have this episode due to you guys. So, uh, let's hop right in. Um, like I mentioned, you know, the summer anime season uh, is admittedly a bit of a lighter season compared to the first half of the year. Um, yeah, there's still some shows worth watching, which, you know, um, if you listen to my last episode, you know that's the case. But, um, and it's also been a couple of new shows that have premiered since then. So, um, I, and I put some shows on hold. So, uh, I'll do a brief catch up at the end of the episode. That being said, you know, even if you're not watching current anime, there's still a lot to, to see uh, in the anime world. For example, uh, yeah, the Olympics was just wrapped up, uh, but since it's in Tokyo, a ton of athletes have been letting their weeb flag fly, uh, giving a lot of references and, and, and homages to anime. Plus, you know, anime being anime music being played in the background of certain events or at the closing ceremony. Um, so, yeah, I fully support all that weebiness getting out there um you know in in addition it's also a great time to catch up on the backlog uh, for example salmon king uh and the evangelion remake films are coming to streaming uh this past this week um with netflix with salmon king coming to netflix this past monday and amazon coming and, and evangelion coming to amazon on friday um the way they, this episode comes out so you know in addition there are a lot of other new films making the way to the west um i caught sirabaka's feature film um earlier this week um netflix has released it released bubble up like a soda and you know there are a couple of live action anim- uh, adaptations I got my eye on. Uh, DJ Agitaru from the New York Asian Film Fest, which is streaming, um, as well as Roni Kenson, which is coming to Netflix. So uh, for myself, you know, I all- in addition to all this, I also finally got around to finishing my Studio Ghibli watch through um, that I started earlier this year, which is the subject for this episode. Uh, in fact, I actually ended up watching a few extra films that were still somewhat on theme, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, with that, let's dive into the rest of the filmography of Studio Ghibli. If you have not listened to my past two episodes about Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata's filmography with Studio Ghibli and before that um, make sure you do so as this is a third part in that trilogy so to speak also obviously minor spoilers for the Ghibli films up ahead so to recap, you know, Studio Ghibli was founded in 1985 after Miyazaki's film Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. Uh, directors Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata, as well as producer Toshio Suzuki, uh, bought up studio Topcraft, who helped with Nausicaa, and shortly after became a subsidiary of publishing company Tokuma Soten, uh, which, through their partnership with Disney, managed distribution of the Ghibli films to the West. For the first seven theatrical films of Studio Ghibli proper, um, they were all either a Miyazaki or Takahata production from 1986 to 1994. That being said, within this time period, there was actually a Ghibli film released direct to TV that most people probably don't know about uh, called Ocean Waves.
Released in 1993, Ocean Waves is an adaptation of a serialized novel by Sarako Himuro, published from 1990 through 1992 in Tokuma Shoten's Animates magazine, uh, the same magazine many of Miyazaki's original manga originally appeared in, uh, such as Porco Rosso. Uh, in 1992, toward the end of production of Miyazaki's Porco Rosso and Takahata's Only Yesterday, discussions began on adapting this story that had been adapted in, uh, this novel had been adapted in the magazine, um, uh, um, and and in addition, they wanted to have it be a project by the younger generation of studio staff. Um, you start start training up for the future. Uh, director Tonomi Mochizuki, who was 34 at the time and a fan of Himuro's work in general, Himuro being the author of the of the um, of the story, uh, was brought on from outside the studio to direct the slice of life drama based on his experience with other similar shows at the time, such as uh, Kimagure Orange Road, Magical Girl Creamy Mommy, and Maison Ikoku. Now, I actually have seen Ocean Waves a few years back, actually, back in 2017 when it was randomly showing at the IFC Center here in New York City. Uh, so my memory is a bit fuzzy about it uh, in terms of plot. Um, in general, it follows the feelings and emotions of high school of high schoolers from the Koichi uh, prefecture as they deal with growing up and parent divorces and teenage love triangles and all that. You can tell it really made an impact on me, right? Um, I won't say I particularly like the film, but it certainly, and it certainly is very much outside of the magical realm that the early Ghibli films that Miyazaki had worked on. And even compared to Takahata's films, which are set in the real world, you know, Grave of the Firefights and Only Yesterday, it doesn't really do anything ambitious with the medium animation that live action uh, could not have accomplished. Um, you know, in fact, in the same year that this animated film came out, there was actually a live action TV drama adaptation of the story as well, which kind of proves that point. Now, the film was intended to be made fast and cheap and high, with fast and cheap, but also with high quality. So anyone, and, but anyone who's worked uh, in, when it comes to production knows that you can really only pick two of the three most realistically. Um, the studio ended up with a film that both went over budget and was delayed, with director Mochizuki apparently getting an ulcer due to the stress, though to be fair, he was also working on another project at the same time. Now, to the point, this, this went to the point where he actually went to the production rap party with an ivy trip stuck into his arm. Now, while Ocean Waves is probably the most forgotten, honestly, of all the Ghibli films, um, I believe it's actually the only one that does not yet have an English dub, it still is important as the first non-Miyazaki, non-Takahata film produced by the studio. Um, that being said, Ocean Waves is also uh, a direct-to-TV release. So the first theatrical release of Ghibli that's by a different director than the big two uh, would be Whisper of the Heart, directed by Yoshifumi Kondo, released in 1995. Based on the 1989 manga by Ao Hiragi, it follows the high school life of bookworm Suzuku Tsukishima, uh, or rather middle, middle school life, uh, living her middle school life in a Tokyo uh, suburb. Now, based on the theatrical posters, which all feature this very dapperly dressed cat, I was fully expecting to be in the, the to this to be in the full-on fantasy realm of, of Miyazaki films. Um, but it, I was actually bamboozled. It's actually a much more uh, closer to Isao Takahata's stories with the that fancy cat coming from a scene of her imagination from a fantasy novel that's, that the main character is working on. Uh, in that sense, it also has a lot of the same DNA as Ocean Waves and Only Yesterday as a realistic series, um, as I mentioned, similar to Takahata's works. Though again, like Takahata's work, it also uses the medium to really do stuff you couldn't otherwise in live action, particularly in the act in the accents in the um, in the segments of, of fantasy, as well as you know, using animation to really try to carry through the emotions of the characters in their expressions. Um, in addition, director Yoshifumi Kondo actually worked on a few scenes in Ocean Waves as well, hence further connecting that uh, chronology there. 
Now, this may be Yosifumu Kondo's only directorial credit for reasons we'll talk about in a little bit, but by this point, he was no stranger to the studio. Uh, he had done character design and animation direction for an earlier Ghibli works, uh, Grave of the Fireflies, Only Yesterday's Kiki's Delivery Service, Porco Rosso, and Pompoco, um, and would also go on to help out with Princess Mononoke. He even went back further with the two founding directors as animators on pre Ghibli projects of theirs, like the Nippon Animation World Masterpiece Theater, Panda Go Panda, Lupin the Third, and Sherlock Hound. Now, Hayao Miyazaki was actually the one who came up with the idea for this adaptation of this novel, having found the original manga while on vacation with his, you know, with his grandkids um, after Kiki's delivery service, and he ended up writing the screenplay, uh, also taking inspiration from the real-life style stories of Ocean Waves. Uh, Kondo had said he wanted to create a Totoro film without Totoro, uh, which I take to mean a story about youth and growing up, like it's kind of like the central theme of Totoro, um, with some with some fantastical elements, but also not fully setting that that world in a fantasy world like Totoro does with supernatural elements. The hope was that Yosifumi Kondo would become the successor to Miyazaki and that he could and so that Miyazaki could retire. Um, this film would go on to be a success, uh, being the highest grossing film in Japan in 1995. So why is this Yosifumi Kondo's only work uh, as a director? Well, tragically in 1998 he actually passed away from an aortic dissection or dissection, uh, allegedly from overwork. Uh, this brought on Miyazaki's first announcement of retirement, though obviously he would come back later. Um, this is the same because it on its as own. Uh, I really like Whisper of the Heart. I would actually go far to say it's my favorite non-Takada, non-Miyazaki film from Ghibli, um, and for many I know is actually their actual favorite film. Now, as far as the film itself goes, it's somewhat hard to dissect which parts of the films are Kondo's signature elements, um, as this is his only film, and which ones are you know Studio Ghibli mainstays. But it very much falls in with that Ghibli house style, combining detailed background work uh, with rounded character designs. I particularly enjoy the film's use of the song "Country Roads" as a motif throughout. Um, in general, I honestly like that song in films in general. Uh, the Kingsman Two comes in mind, uh, but there's just something magical about that scene where Suzuku and Seiji sing the song alongside. Sage's grandfather and his friends. Top five Ghibli scenes, period, of all Ghibli films, not just non Takata, non Miyazaki films. Um, also, a fun fact if you look into lo fi, if you're into lo fi hip hop, you probably know of the famous lo fi girl from the YouTube channel Chilled Cow. Uh, the original work was, the original um, you know, lo fi girl was actually based on a scene from this film of Suzuku studying and writing at her desk. I wonder if it's a lo-fi version of Country Road. Uh, speaking of, the alternate versions of Country Road that Suzuku translates in Japanese in the film, the version called Concrete Roads as an homage to Ho Tokyo sur uh, suburb far away from West Virginia, uh, was originally translated by producer Suzu Suzuku's um, daughter and later fleshed out by Miyazaki himself. Another family member to contribute to the film was Miyazaki's second son, Keisuke Miyazaki, who is a professional woodcarver and contributed some illustrations for the film. Uh, we'll get to Miyazaki's other son later this episode. Now, this is also the only Ghibli film to have a feature-length sequel. So, the dapper cat who we saw in the promotional art was actually a carving in some antique store uh, referred to as the Baron, uh, who ends up becoming inspiration for the protagonist of Suzuku's novel. After the release of Wizard of the Heart, the fantasy scenes of the Baron were so particularly popular, uh, in no small part due to the surrealist painter uh, Naruse Inoue's work, um, when Ghibli got a request to make a, tw a short 20-minute film featuring cats for a theme park, uh, Miyazaki and Ghibli commissioned the original mangaka Ao Hiragi to make a spin-off manga about the Baron, which also featured another high school girl named Haru, as well as the cat Muta, who appears in the original film. 
After the amusement park decided to cancel the project, the work that had been done was used as another testing ground for future Ghibli directors and expanded out to 45 minutes, uh, with Miyuki Morita being chosen to helm the project. Uh, he had worked on a number of projects outside of Ghibli prior to this, including Moroni Kenshin, Akira, Golden Boy, the 1993 JoJo Bizarre Adventure series, Memories, and Perfect Blue from Satoshi Khan, as well as Ghibli films such as Kiki's Delivery Service, My Neighbors the Yamadas, and Sorts for the Ghibli Museum. Now, after adapting the manga into 525 pages of storyboards, Miyazaki and pro uh, producer uh, Suzuki uh, upgraded the project to be a, a feature-length film at 75 minutes. Now, having worked at My Neighbor the Yamadas, it's not surprised that this one veers away from the traditional Ghibli house style. Uh, while not perhaps not as abstract as y the Yamadas, the character designs are definitely less rounded than the typical Ghibli film, which, you know, again, I sorry for keep on using the word rounded Ghibli character designs. This is the best way I know how to describe it. Um... Now this is now this is partly due to the fact that animator Satoko Morikara, um, as opposed to Ghibli mainstay Kitaro Kusaka, who had worked on Whisper of the Heart, were the ones who provided the character designs. Uh, this one definitely plays a lot more in that fantasy world with supernatural elements and even a touch of isekai brought in. It kind of almost reminds me of the Phantom Tollbooth, that 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 uh, Western novel for for kids about traveling to another weird weird world. Um, I've, if I'm honest, I don't think it has quite the same charm as Whisper of the Heart or other Ghibli films like. Those films still say something about our day-to-day -day life, um, even if it's by going to another world or to a fantasy world or integrating fantasy into our real world. And while there definitely is, I guess, a story here um, or a, a theme here, it's not quite as tight um, and as, as well-rounded as, as I feel it is in other Ghibli films. Um, but I do admit they made uh, Baron look like an absolute snack here. Uh, no, I'm not a furry, I swear. It's just that the Japanese equivalent of Lola, Lola Bunny in the original Space Jam, I guess. Uh, anyway, I think if you take the film as an adaptation of the novel that Suzuku wrote within the original Whistle of the Heart film, which actually mangaka Hiragi contemplated crediting the story credit for her film in the original publication to Suzuku, um, that kind of headcanon explains why this looks a little bit different as it would be an anime adaptation of that story, which is, this is how anime looks to anime characters and makes you know the film feel pretty quaint in that regard. Okay, so at this point in 2002, we've had three non-Miyazaki Takahata films from Ghibli from three different different directors, one of which was on TV only. Uh, Miyazaki had retired at this point, then unretired for Spirit of the Way, then retired again, though he was soon to come back for House Moving Castle in 2004. Uh, Takahata is in soft retirement until 2013, where the tale of Princess Kaguya would come out. Um, while they're still part of Tokuma Soten at this point, in a few years, Ghibli would become their own independent studio. Uh, with all of the renown of the studio after they you know opened up uh, after the uh, um, Spirit of the Way um, they opened the Ghibli Museum with a number of swords produced exclusively for the museum which means sadly I can't review them for this episode uh, side note there was actually a news a few weeks back where the studio had, had, put, had to put on a crowdfunding campaign to offset the pandemic induced financial difficulties due to the lack of tourism and the fans came through delivering more than double the target in less than a week with months still going on the campaign but anyway back to the films and the status of Ghibli at this time the studio with their founding directors was not getting any younger and you know they really had to start looking to the future like what would they do Enter Goro Miyazaki, uh, the eldest son of Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, he has the distinction of making the third most films at the studio since its founding behind the two mainstays, uh, three total. And he also has the distinct infamy of having two of those be the worst received films in the studio's history. 
Now, part of that is, of course, the pressure of having to live up to his father's legacy, which is definitely no easy feat. I think a lot, I think a lot about a similar Japanese elderly master, Jiro Ono of Jiro Dreams of Sushi fame. Uh, in that documentary, Jiro's eldest son, Yoshikazu Ono, is shown to basically be an apprentice to his father at the age that many would consider retiring, uh, with someone remarking that, you know, if he was twice as good as his father, he would be considered just as on even footing, and uh, and if he was as good as his father, he would be considered to be a failure. So, given the pressure in many cultures, but from my understanding, it's especially prevalent in Japanese culture too, for the eldest son to follow in their father's craft. One can't really help if Goro Miyazaki really desired to go into animation in the first place, and, and, what his, and why he continues to do so. Uh, prior to entering the film business, he actually worked in landscape architecture, uh, helping with the design of the aforementioned Ghibli Museum, as well as serving as its director for the first four years of its existence. So backing up a bit, uh, Hayao Miyazaki, among many other directors uh, and, and, and creators, uh, was, was very uh, inspired by Ursula Gwynn's fantasy series uh, Tales from Earthsea and wanted to adapt it into a film adaptation, which uh, Ursula Le Guin was also very infamous for not allowing film adaptations of that work. While much of Miyazaki's work were inspired by the world-building of Earthsea, Le Guin wasn't familiar with his work as such and associated animation with children's work for Disney, so she rejected the, the request. However, you know, after the, the success of Spirit of the Way at the Oscars and having seen Totoro at this point, she ended up giving her blessing to Studio Ghibli to adapt it with the understanding that Hayao Miyazaki would be the one adapting it. However, you know, Hayao Miyazaki had one small problem with this. Uh, he was busy directing his return from his second retirement uh, with Howl's Moving Castle. So, producer Suzuki made the call to have Goro Miyazaki direct the film. Um, you know, now, allegedly, part of the reason he made the decision to let uh, someone who had never worked in animation before become a director was that, you know, Obviously, Goro Miyazaki, as I mentioned, was the director of the museum and was involved in its, you know, in its construction. And he got into some arguments and won these arguments with his father um, again over the construction of the Ghibli Museum and convinced Suzuki that you know Goro had the backbone to be a director. Now, despite Hayao's feelings that you know Goro was not yet ready to direct a film, uh, he vow he did reluctantly vouch for Goro in meetings with Le Guin, uh, saying that you know yeah he trusts his son to, to carry the project. Um, allegedly, Goro's early storyboards were also pretty decent to bring animators on board, and Ursula Le Guin's son actually also advocated for Goro Miyazaki as well. So production-wise, uh, producer Suzuki was still thinking about the future of the studio and how they probably needed to speed the production. Um, the team was given only 10 months to complete the film, half of what Hayao Miyazaki had for Howl's Moving Castle, which involved bringing in subcrack and and the and production of Tales from OHC also involved bringing in subcontractors from outside the studio to help, uh, as opposed to doing it all in-house as Hayao Miyazaki did, um, which ultimately led to OHC being completed in 8.5 months. Uh, Keiko Niwa, who wrote the screenplay for Ocean Waves, co-wrote the script with Goro Miyazaki. Uh, Goro Miyazaki also led the kept the production diary, which he ended up publishing online to the Ghibli website at the time, giving some much more insight into the process, such as interactions with uh, animation director Takeshi Inamura, art director Yoji Takasige, and head colorist Michio Yasuda, among others. Uh, notably, for better or for worse, uh, Hayao Miyazaki, the elder, uh, did not get involved at all with production, giving Goro full independence on this, uh, even reportedly not speaking to his son for the entire eight months of production. 
Now, independence is somewhat of a theme uh, for the film and also for Ghibli at the time. Uh, not only, as supposedly in, in Goro Miyazaki's words, uh, not only was he given the freedom in the production of the film, according to him and in his production diary, he carried on the feeling of newfound independence of Ghibli after it had separated from Tokuma Soten, which is why he related to the character Get Story and, and, and his new independence in, his, in the world. Uh, throughout the film, there were also homages to the works of other Ghibli directors. Uh, there's one scene in particular that pays homage to Takahashi. Uh, uh, work, uh, first work, Horrors, the Prince of the Sun, in Fighting Against Wolves. Uh, in addition, Goro included some references to his father's manga, uh, Joy, uh, Journey of Suna, which served as an as a you know kind of stepping off point for Inosuke of the Wind and other such works. Uh, overall, throughout the uh, film, focuses on it, it focuses on the first, third, and fourth books of the uh, Tales from Earthsea uh, uh, series. Now, Goro also put an extra emphasis on the dragons from the series from the film, which is particularly taken. Bye. Now, as far as the reception of the film itself, um, well, infamously, it is the lowest-ranked Ghibli film for various critic sites after, uh, for a long time, well, at least it was until very recently. I am finding somewhat conflicting reactions regarding Hayao Miyazaki's reaction to the film. Uh, one report said that he said that it was made honestly and thus it was good. On the other hand, in an early screening, he reportedly stated, I was looking at my son, at my son, at my kid, he's not an adult yet, that's all. Um, as far as Ursula Gwynn's reactions, he also stated it's it's not my book, it's your movie, it is a good movie, in particular appreciating the aesthetic of the film as it was very beautiful, though the story and writing felt off for her. I haven't read the series of Earthsea myself, but according to my sister who has, the Earthsea series have you know different protagonists and different antagonists who are all adjacent to each other uh, across the different stories, and again, they do overlap, so you do get a sense of you know what one person is like from a different perspective that's not their own, uh, thereby kind of showing the multifaceted nature of good and evil evil respectively. Uh, which the fact that this film basically makes evil be tied to like one particular human individual who can be killed off kind of neuters that particular theme of the series. Uh, for Gwyn, she says that the film felt like an entirely different story played out by characters who happen to have the same name as her characters. Personally, for me, I think the film was a little, first of all, way too long at two hours. Probably should have been about 90 minutes max uh, for what was the content of the film. I agree the film was very beautiful. In particular, the work of the backgrounds, especially in the city, stood out to me. Uh, beyond that, though, the world building wasn't particularly impressive uh, on what I th I think would, would stand out from, and nothing really made it stand out from any generic fantasy setting. Like, as much as Goro loved the dragons, I honestly had no idea what the dragons were doing in the film and how they fit in, um, or what the balance was, or why Eren even suddenly attacked his dad at the beginning out of nowhere. Uh, the character designs felt also a little bit flatter than the normal rounded shape for the Ghibli character design. Um, and and partially, and this also is particularly true when it comes to showing emotion, and in particular the facial expressions of Aaron. They all just felt very surreal and different. Um, you know, partly yes, I can see how like for. Uh, Whisper of the Heart, or not only yesterday for Isataka Hara, they did like a new thing with the faces, but the logic behind it kind of makes sense. Here, it, it doesn't really feel like a a, a, a a surreal, sublime experience that most silly films have. Um, perhaps that was what Goro was going for, but ultimately, it didn't really work for me. 
So, uh, moving on to Goro Miyazaki's next film, and skipping over one other film, which I'll return to back later, um, from Up on Poppy Hill, came up five years later in 2011. Now, I couldn't find the rationale behind assigning Goro Miyazaki to the project, but as opposed to Tales from Earthsea, which had zero Hayao Miyazaki independence, this one actually had the elder Miyazaki working as the co-screenwriter, uh, again alongside Keika Niwa. Uh, the film is based on the sojo manga from Up on Poppy Hill, which tells the story of 1980s Japan about a young high school girl's relationship set in the port town of Yokohama. However, Miyazaki the the Elder uh, chose to change the setting to be set in the 1960s, just before the 1964 Olympics in which Japan was hosting, as well as during the student activist uh, period, which Miyazaki the Elder took part in. Allegedly, this was with the intent to play into nostalgia for this particular time period of economic prosperity for Japan. Uh, Production-wise, the film went through quite a bit of conflict. Uh, the film had less than a year of total production time uh, starting in 2010. Uh, while Goro was the director, higher screenwriter, you know, being that lionizing figure, uh, you know, definitely would have a significant influence as well with lots of disagreements between the two. In fact, there's actually a documentary from the NHK called Poppy Hill, 300 Days of War Between Father and Son, chronicling this, you know, contentious period of their working together. I haven't seen it myself, but from the details I can gather online, things definitely got tense in the back and forth with Miyazaki the Elder saying that his son was not cut out for directing at all. Um, in any case, as things were coming into the home stretch and the storyboard finally completed an animation about halfway done, four months left to go, Japan suffered the March 11th, uh, 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami. Uh, despite rolling blackouts impacting the studio, not to mention uh, whatever other mental toll the disaster had taken on the staff at this point, Hayao Miyazaki was against any pause or stopping of work still set to hit the July release date. Eventually, they did return to work, though with an adjusted work schedule through the nights to avoid blackouts, uh, with the intent that the film would speak to post-Quake Japan to offer some form of support. And they ended up finishing the film with about three weeks to spare. Now, as far as the film itself goes, I will say it was definitely in the vein of the more realistic, youth-focused Ghibli films. Um, you do see Elder Miyazaki's influence in the writing, as well as especially in the setting, as you mentioned, but also in the energy of the woman in, in, in uh, renovating the Latin Quarter, among other places. Which, the Latin Quarter, honestly, those scenes were my favorite, I think, in the film, was just how much energy and detail in the background art there were. I will say the, the story plot uh, of the twist of the two love interests potentially being half-siblings uh, separated at birth was kind of out of nowhere, but then again, apparently it was commentary on the craziness of soap operas at the time. I don't know, the whole movie felt just like two separate stories masked up together, that of the Latin Quarter and that of Umi and Soon's relationship uh, must together. And while I'd like to think it reflects the duality of the film between Gore and Hayao, apparently that's just because you know the Latin Quarter part was a, a Ghibli original, I don't think anything in particular stands out from the film beyond the setting of the Latin Quarter. So I will say, I, I won't say it's in the upper echelon of Ghibli films overall, but it certainly is Goro Miyazaki's uh, best work uh, to date. Three years later, in 2014, Goro took on Ghibli's first, and to date only, television animated series Ronza the Robber's Daughter, based on the story by Swedish author Astrid Lindgren, Lindgren of Pippi Longstocking fame, which Hayao Miyazaki was, was not able to adapt decades earlier. I won't dwell too much on this one as I haven't seen it in full. I do remember back in 2014 checking out the first episode on, or so when it was picked up by Amazon uh, when they were trying to get into the anime game, but the 2D cel-shaded 3D animation style used for the series, another first for the studio, was a bit of a deterrent for me since I wasn't fully used to CG anime at this point. It was originally going to be a movie, but eventually it was adapted for a TV series at the request of the NHK, 
leading to the 24-episode series. Uh, because of the need for a tighter turnaround time, they did partner with Polygon Pictures and Duongo Co. Limited in order to produce the series. Uh, my misgivings aside, apparently it is actually well-received from those who have seen it in its entirety, and the 3D nature of the film actually uh, inspired Goro Miyazaki's next project, as well as the Miyazaki the Elder to work on a short film in 3D for the Ghibli Museum. This brings us to the most recent Goro Miyazaki film, Earwig and the Wits, which came out just last year. Uh, once again, this one is an adaptation of another literature work, this time a children's story by of English author Diane Wynne-Jones about the young girl Erica who always finds a way to be in control of the adults around her in her life, even some magical ones who try and adopt her from the orphanage to help out making witchy's potions. Uh, the most notable feature of this film is, of course, the fact that it is, again, fully produced in CG 3D animation, a first for the studio, and again, a part of a larger push to try to see what a post-Haya world would look like, especially since Isao Takahata died partway through production. Apparently, they didn't want to opt for the hyper-realism of uh, Pixar films, instead opting for a more stop-motion animated look like Laika or Aardman, which I honestly am okay with. I personally think the film does an okay job of adopting the more fantastical, exaggerated Ghibli character designs, though they don't have the quite expressive emotive nature that it comes to the 2D character models and their facial reactions are a little bit stiff if I'm quite honest and don't really quite move as much. Um, there's also something very Roald Dahl-esque in the designs to me though that might just be biased because I know it's from a British author. Uh, the film also always was always was set to have a uh, television debut uh, which worked just as well given the COVID pandemic shutting down movie theaters. If I had to critique the film, it's just that the writing is fairly weak with a resolution kind of just happening because the film ran up against its its time, its time end time and, and didn't really have much more time to give. Um, and it didn't really feel particularly well earned. And perhaps it's a production choice, but opting to limit the majority of the story to the small house of Erica and the wits and, and uh, the Mandrake live in makes the story feel really small and claustrophobic and constrained in scope. Um, not really the vast magical thing. Like even... Um, even uh, Tales from Earthsea, which, you know, for its fault and being limited to only a couple of locations, still felt like it was like a bigger world. This is just very small and constrained. Um, to their credit, though, they did make the background of Bella Yaga's workshop feel as witsy as possible. Now, part of that may be the fact that this story was published posthumously from, from uh, uh, the, the author's death, so they kind of had to fill in the blanks uh, somewhat with what would have happened, um, but to that end, it also feels like because they had more of a blank state to work with, they could have gone a lot further in, in reimagining and readapting the story. Probably the highlight of the film was the music of the fictional band Earwig, uh, which has a, very, it has a classic British rock feel to it, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> Nevertheless, this is the lowest rated Ghibli film by a country mile, although I don't know, I think I still probably put Ertzi a little bit below this one myself. Uh, speaking about Goro Miyazaki in general, as I mentioned, he is the in the unenviable position of being the son of one of the most revered animators in the world, and in the same line of work. I can't claim to know what he's thinking, nor will I speculate, but one does have to wonder why he persists despite the negative reactions to all his films. Uh, as far as motifs or common themes throughout his works, the ones that stand out to me are the use of music. Um, we have an uh, extended singing scene in Earthsea and in Poppy Hill, as well as the band uh, in Earwig, in Earwig and the 
the wits. A beautiful, probably the, the his best element is his background work. The city in Earthsea, the Latin Court in Poppy Hill, and the Witch's Workshop in Earwig, and probably an understandable fascination with family relationships in all of his films. Aaron being an orphan after notably killing his king, uh, his father the king, uh, the incest scare in Poppy Hill of all things, and the admiration of Umi's father uh, who had died in the Korean War from, Pop from Poppy Hill, and Earwig being about an orphan who makes her own found family wherever she goes. Perhaps more so than any of this, though, Goro Miyazaki kind of embodies the question about the future of Studio Ghibli once Miyazaki the Elder retires for good. His films have operated under the Taira timeline as opposed to what the Elder Miyazaki usually does. Um, you know, all, all of his films have the storyboards completed, but unlike the Elder Miyazaki who kind of Finishes, starts production even before he even knows where the story is going to end. And, you know, Goro Miyazaki also makes use of the new mediums of creation, such as 3D animation, despite whatever pushbacks and experiments may come. To that end, one must give him credit for pushing through and soldiering on to try and find new grounds for the studio explore. On that end, though, I think the long-term future of Studio Ghibli might not actually lie with Studio Ghibli itself. To understand, let's rewind back to 2010. Now, producer Suzuki and Hayao Miyazaki were discussing their post-Ponyo film plans and had decided to adapt the 1952 story of The Borrowers from English author Mary Norton about little people living in the walls of a house and borrowing things here and there in order to survive. Um, I definitely remember reading The Borrowers as a child and was a big fan of the series, so I was looking forward to this. Uh, Miyazaki had apparently wanted to adopt the borrows from as far back as 40 years prior and thought of the story as a commentary on mass consumer culture which would be timely uh, for the time period it came out in uh, and it would end up you know, resetting, changing the setting to be from you know, 1950s British to 2000s Japan. Uh, now, while Miyazaki was working on the script, chain, you know, uh, he and, he asked Suzuki who would direct the film. Apparently, for no reason, Suzuki recommended animator Hiromasa Yonobayashi, who at the time was 36 years old, so would have been the youngest director of a theatrical Ghibli film. He had been an in-between in animator for Princess Mononoke and My Neighbors the Yamadas, and eventually key animator for Spirit of the Way, House Moving Castle, and Ponyo, so he's a 12-year veteran of the studio at this point. In retrospect, while the studio was surprised by the choice, in hindsight, it felt like a good choice for them, given that Yone Bayashi was well-liked and respected by the studio and his work had always been top-notch. Uh, Keiko Niwa once again returned to co-write the script. As Yone Bayashi worked on the storyboards, he didn't bring them to Miyazaki for review in order to make sure things kept moving along at a pace, not being held back by, uh, that's how we call them, the strong opinions that uh, the elder Miyazaki might have. In addition, in, as opposed to Miyazaki's style of starting production, even without an ending in place, Yone Bayashi finished the storyboards before animation began. Now, while the aging animation workforce of Ghibli led to some stress during production, they still made their deadline, finishing without a month and a half to spare before their mid-July release date in 2010. Now, I've already expressed my appreciation of the original novel, but I will say The Secret World of Ariadne, as it was released as, is a really refreshing tale out of Ghibli. Uh, the world-building uh, of what a life as a tiny borrower is like is really well realized, even more so swinging us, the audience, down to their size to see what the world looks like from their perspective within the grass, within the vines, under the, under the cupboards, and, and in the spaces between walls. Um, really... It felt very visionary, right? The story is a little bit of sweet, something we'll see from Yone Bayashi's other works. And if there was a critique, I'd say that the theme overall of the film, I'm trying to say, doesn't quite feel as strongly. Um, but the visuals and the sheer fun of being in the world, they transported to us 
elevates the world to me. It's kind of, you know, not quite full on magical realm like Miyazaki's films and ended up evolving into. Not quite fully, again, uh, um, realistic as, you know, Takahata's was. It's somewhat striking that balance in between. Also, a fun fact on this one, this was actually Spider-Man actor Tom Holland's first theatrical role in voicing in the British dub. Uh, now, with uh, Yonobayashi's success with Ariadne, he would come back in 2014 for the final Ghibli film of six years, uh, for six years uh, before you know, Miyazaki, uh, you know, before Earwig, uh, after Miyazaki and Takahata's final film in 2013. Uh, when Marnie was there, adapts the novel of the same name by British author Joan G. Robinson. I will say I did see this one in theaters when it came out in the States in 2015, so that was six years ago, and I honestly don't remember too much about it. The story basically goes that there's a young orphan, Anna Sasaki, who goes to live in Hokkaido to live with her foster parents' relatives. Uh, she finds an old mansion and meets a girl there who has a mysterious past. And throughout the film, Anna deals with her feelings of loneliness and isolation, uh, which is what director Yona Bayasi was aiming for, especially for children uh, especially for children as his primary audience uh, after the two previous adult-oriented Ghibli films from Miyazaki and Takahata. Uh, to help in production, especially with head producer Totoshio Suzuki stepping back from production work after The Wind Rises, producer Yoshiaki Nishimura would help take the reins on this one, uh, having worked on Tale of the Princess Kaguya as a production uh, coordinator. Now, while the film is still somewhat melancholic in nature, it was well-received, enough that it was actually nominated for the Best Animated Feature Film of the Year, ultimately losing Using out the Pixar's Inside Out. After when Marnie was there, again, Toshio, uh, the uh, the producer Suzuki announced the hiatus for the studio from production uh, to restructure after Miyazaki's uh, you know supposed retirement. Sir, there were co-producers on the Oscar-nominated animated film The Red Turtle from Dutch animation animator Michael du uh, Dudok De Witt in 2016, but that doesn't really count since I don't think they actually did much animation. It just kind of helped facilitate things along. And sir, now we have Iwig and the Wits and Miyazaki the Elders working on his next film whenever that comes out. But what of the younger staff like Yonobayashi and producer Nishimura? What would they do with Studio Ghibli being shut down? Well, in 2015, they went off to co-found Studio Ponok, which I believe is where the spirit of Studio Ghibli lives for the future. Or at least the form of it, depending on how you define the spirit of, of Ghibli. Maybe the extremely perfectionistic uh, Miyazaki method of making film will die at Studio Ghibli with him, but there still exists that lineage of, um, of excellent you know, uh, fantasy, uh, semi-fantasy worlds at Studio Ponok. After all, Ponok is the Croatian word for midnight, uh, meaning the beginning of a new day, uh, presumably for animation within Japan of this style. Uh, Yonobayashi's first feature film with Ponak, uh, Mary and the Witch's Flower, released in 2017, which is when I also saw it in theaters here in the States. Again, going off of memory for this one, so it may be a bit rusty. Uh, based on British novelist Mary Stewart's 1971 book, The Little Broomstick, it follows the story of Mary Smith, who uses the powers of a magical flower to be a witch for a single night. Uh, the story and animation was certainly ambitious, perhaps a bit so more than uh, as it could have been a bit, used a little bit more polished uh, to be tighter and wasn't quite as atmospheric as other Ghibli films of the past. Um, again, we have Yona Bayasi at this point's signature melancholy uh, style with, honestly, all of his films seem to have like a European base to them. Um, again, maybe that's just the source material, but it definitely still still carries through uh, with a little bit of like animus, you know, relationship with nature element to it. Um, you know, if I were to describe his approach to fantasy, again, if Takahata was finding the magic in everyday life uh, with no actual supernatural elements in the realistic worlds he portrays, and Miyazaki veers toward high fantasy with alternate realities where magic and supernatural 
supernatural beings are part of everyday life, uh, Yonobayashi strikes a balance between the two. There are supernatural elements you wouldn't find in Takahata's works. Again, the borrower's existence in Arieti, the ghostly figures in Marnie, and especially the witches in Mary and the Witch's Flower, which is probably his most out there fantasy-wise. But these films still take place where our characters are rooted more or less in the real world with just this one thing changed, right? Perhaps this, the Mary and the Witch's Flower is a bit stretched beyond that, um, but this, but at the end of the films, he still ends up returning to a mostly normal life at the end of the film, saying he doesn't need magic anymore. So, in addition to Mary and the Witch's Flower, Studio Pornok has also worked on a couple of sorts. Uh, they did the 15-second commercial for the West Japanese uh, Railway Company as their first actual uh, commercial work. And in 2018, they released a collection of sword films entitled Modest Heroes that you can find on Netflix. Uh, one was directed by uh, Yonobayashi, one by former studio uh, Ghibli employee Yoshiyuki Momose, who has his own studio, Studio Kanzi, which does contract work for other animation projects, and then one by Ghibli animator Akihiko uh, Yamashita. In fact, there were also going to be four films in this uh, in this collection. The fourth being directed by the late Isata Takahada, who unfortunately passed before he couldn't complete his part of the project. And then most recently, as part of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, Studio Ponak released an eight-minute film titled Tomorrow's Leaves, directed by Yoshiyuki Momose. Now, while the Olympics were delayed, this did have its debut at the Annecy International Film Festival in June of this year, and later it would be shown on the Olympics YouTube channel, which I'll link in the show notes below. This is well worth the watch, and, uh, and, and honestly, what reminded me, I should probably include Studio Ponok in this episode. So that's that. Uh, between this episode and the last two on Studio Ghibli, I've covered every film that Studio Ghibli has produced, and then some other related works as well. Obviously, we won't know how many more studios it has to produce. Studio Ghibli has to produce. Miyazaki will Miyazaki ever retire for good before passing away, or whether Goro Miyazaki will find his own voice as a director that is well received by others and can overcome his father's shadow. Uh, studio Ponok is still a very young studio at this point that has taken on the mantle of Ghibli at this point, but who knows what they have in store for them in the future. What we do know is that whether your favorite is Spirit of the Way, or Tale of Princess Kaguya, or Whisper of the Heart, or any other Ghibli film, every director every animator who's worked on the filmography, be it the highest or the lowest rated, even the Ghibli sword films that only appear in their museum, all of them have had an impact on the studio, which in turn has been a pillar and influence on the anime world for decades, and I think that is something we can all appreciate. Thanks so much for listening to this final episode of my Studio Ghibli retrospective. It's been something I've wanted to do for years now, so I'm finally glad I got the excuse and a chance to power through them all. Uh, before we close out this episode, a quick update on where I am with summer seasonal shows. As promised, I'm a bit behind for the past few weeks given how I had to focus on the Ghibli watch through, but I'm going to do my best, doing my best to catch up. Um, we have Eat Then Heroes Only Knows Peace and The Great Jahi, uh, both premiering, uh, will not be defeated, both premiering since the last episode. They're both good, worth checking out for sure. It is then heroes more so for its super saturated aesthetic and great Zahi more so for its comedy. Um, I ended up putting on hold D-Side Trauma Ray and My Hero Academia. Uh, the latter, admittedly, is a bit of a surprise since I'm sticking it for, at this point, what, four, five and a half seasons? Uh, four and a half seasons? But it feels almost perfunctory to be even trying to keep, keep up with it at this point. So, um, you know, maybe I'll check in at the end of the season and, and maybe I won't. Who knows? Um, I also put Pete's Boy Riverside on hold. The story and production actually seems interesting, but they made the bizarre decision to try to air it in a non-chronological order for seemingly the reason that they think it's going to end in a climax better this way um, but you know apparently there's also going to be an option to just watch it chronologically once it's all done which I think I'm going to wait to do there um, I also ended up dropping Kageki Sojo and Remain well I definitely 
see the appeal to certain audience with the drama, um, be it about theater kids or water polo. If I see those see those kind of stories, I want to see the stage theater performances and actual water polo games, not the backstage or locker room drama. Um, none of the characters were particularly appealing to me either. Um, not yucking your yum if that's what you're into. It's just not for me. Uh, D for DJ also ended up ended this run, so that's one less for me to be keeping up with. All told, that leaves me with about 14 full-length series to be keeping up this season every week. Uh, you can check that out on my anime list, of course. So yeah, uh, that's what I've been watching in my summer anime season so far. And, you know, I got a couple of projects that I'm, that I'm working on. And again, I'm starting a full-time job next week, so we'll see how that works out. Uh, but before I sign off, a question for you, the audience. Which Ghibli film were your favorites? What's your least favorite? What are your thoughts on the non-Hayao Miyazaki, non-Takahata films? What are your thoughts about Studio Ponok? Uh, you can let me know on Twitter at yetanoanimepod at, or via email at yetanotheranimepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow my, my anime list at ninjaboy333, boy with an I. Uh, we're found on all the major podcasts services itunes spotify and google play uh, be sure to subscribe and leave a review at the very least share it with another anime loving friend uh, if you want to be more directly supporting of the show you can do so on patreon.com links to all of that and including to my new show in the show notes uh intro and outro music provided by suishi sakagami at tendas.com editing production by ninja boy media that's it for this episode we air on the first and third fridays of each month next time on yet another anime podcast i'm not quite fully so i'm going to cover by i have a sneaking suspicion that i might do a first episode check on a bunch of Donghua, Chinese animation, which are kind of a cousin to Japanese anime um, in, in the next episode. Like I said, we normally air on the first and third Fridays, but schedule's off this month, so uh, we'll see you guys next week. But until then, uh, see you, Space Cowboy. Bang! <laughs>